In our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation, we now come to our third study, and we will cover the last 11 verses in chapter, um, chapter 1. Uh, two things are happening here. We see the vision of things happening around the vision, and we see Jesus in the vision. So we have a vision specifically of Jesus as he interacts with the churches during the first century, and I think during all the church age, that Jesus is interacting, and these visions are important for the way that Jesus is interacting among us as we are part of a church. But also there's some other events that take place in this vision. And it's just not enough time for me to break down all of the events that are happening and the vision itself. And so I wanted to do them separately, but here's the problem. Some of the things happen before the vision then some of the things happen after the vision. So I'm gonna cover the exact same text both weeks. We'll read both of them, but in one of them, I'm gonna emphasize the things that are happening. That's next week. Today, I'm gonna emphasize the vision that we see of Jesus, but we will be reading the entire text both weeks just to make sure that we get the setting. Um, Let's start by looking at the text. And it's really broken down into three parts. It's the middle part that we're interested in. We have the setting for the vision, in verses 9 through 11. We have the vision itself in verses 13 through 16. And then we have the instructions in the vision that are in 17 through 20. So we're going to look at the setting of the vision and the instructions within the vision uh, next week. But today we're going to take that middle section, 13 uh, through uh, 16. So let's pray. Uh, Well, first of all, let's read. Let's read. We've already prayed. Let's read the text that's here. And uh, then we'll break it down. We'll get into our vision. So this is verse nine of Revelation chapter one. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice which spoke to me. Now, this next section is the section we're going to cover. I'm going to read it, but we're going to cover the next section. And having turned, I saw golden, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a gold band. His head, was, uh, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun in its shining. So this is unlike any vision of Jesus that you see anywhere in Scripture. The closest is in the book of Daniel, 
where you have a vision of an angel that has some of these same features. Verse 17, it says, this is we'll be covering this next week. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, for I am the first, the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. That helps us to identify this as Jesus. And I have the keys to Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That's our outline for the book of Revelation. And then he says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Remember the word angels in Greek is messengers. So the seven stars are the seven messengers, could be angels, could be pastors. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So he turned and he saw the vision of this man walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. Now, let's go back and pick up our vision. He says in verse 12, then I turned to see and the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, he sees this vision of Christ, which could be quite disturbing. John is on the island called Patmos. We'll talk about why he's there later on, but he's held there as a prisoner. It's a fairly small island, five miles wide, 10 miles long. If you ever visit Patmos, you'll be taken to a cave where they say that John had the vision. The interesting thing about the places that they take you to be able to show you, some of them have pretty good provenance because they're, they're old, meaning a long time ago, people said this is the place that it happened. It doesn't mean it happened for sure, but there are some places that are, were pointed out in the 12th, 13th century, and you go, yeah, probably not it. If you go back to the 2nd and 3rd century, there's a lot better provenance that that could be the place where it happened. And this particular place has some pretty good providence. It doesn't mean it's exactly where it is, but if you visit there, you're going to find yourself in a cave and there's some pretty good providence as to that being the place. And so he says, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So we are the light of the world. And in the book of Revelation, churches are represented as lampstands because we give light to the world. Seven in the book of Revelation is the number of perfection. That's maybe a little hard for us to grasp, meaning complete. It's perfect because it's complete. It's not perfect because it's morally complete. And if you've spent any time in church, you know that no church is perfect, right? And so it's, it's complete though. We have everything we need in Christ, including grace, to be able to help us with the struggles that we have. And then he says, but in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The first thing that we learn is that John has a vision of the Son of Man. Now, this is John the Apostle. Almost certainly it's John the Apostle. And John was with Jesus. And, and the favorite reference that Jesus had for himself was, the son of man. I'm reminded when he's standing before Caiaphas on the night that he's arrested 
And Caiaphas says to him, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, yes, but from here on out, you will see the son of man coming in glory and given a kingdom. And Caiaphas tears his clothes and cries out blasphemy, not because he said, yes, I am the son of God, but because he declared himself to be the son of man. I've heard so many people teaching on the son of man say, well, the son of man is a is is talking about Jesus deity. I mean, uh, humanity, because Jesus is. And this is the best way to say it. He is fully man and fully God when he was walking on the earth. He was fully man and fully God, probably better than one 100 percent man and 100 percent God, because then you have 200 percent and that's a problem. Although God could do anything, so he guess he could be 200 percent of something, but he is fully man and he is fully God. But he made a reference and called himself the son of man, which to some is problematic because son of man means a human. That's what the term means. Son of man. I am the son of man. But it is a title, not a statement that he was born of a man. And this is where critics will say, well, Jesus himself said he was the son of man. And you're saying that he had no earthly father, but he called himself a son of man. He's not making a reference to the fact that he had a father as being the son of man. He's saying the son of man, as in the Old Testament, a reference to the son of man. Now, that reference to the old to, to the son of man in the Old Testament. Well, let me give you a couple examples first of Jesus referring him to himself as the son of man. In Luke 19:10, Jesus said this for the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. This is with Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus has come to know the Lord. And everybody's amazed that this crooked chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector has come to the Lord. So he says the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. That's still his purpose today. We are to seek and save the lost. We are his hands and feet, his church, and we are to be living our lives in such a way that people will see Christ and be drawn to him. We do a Q&A on Wednesday afternoon on YouTube and Facebook at four o'clock. One of the questions that I was asked today, it's a common question. Is it OK to get tattoos? This girl was wondering whether or not she could get a fish tattoo. And I told the story of my, my late wife, Lisa, passed away 10 years ago now, uh, this coming up December. But she had Jude 21 tattooed on her kind of hand and thumb. And I remember when she was going to get it. And I, and I thought, you know what I think? I think people get addicted to tattoos. Next thing you know, you're going to be covered in tattoos. And um, but Jude 21 says, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the return of Christ. It's something along those lines. But she got it so that when she was getting her hair done or getting her nails done, inevitably, we were eating places. People would say, what's your tattoo mean? We'd be ordering food. What's your tattoo mean? Jude 21. So she would quote it and it led to her sharing Christ quite often and even led to her leading people to the Lord because of a tattoo. And then she'd kind of look at me like, see, I was supposed to get the tattoo. Now, she did want more tattoos, by the way. She was like, I'm going to get more tattoos. I was like, I knew it. Once you get one, you get addicted to them. You're going to want more and more. But hey, get, get creative 
about ways that you can shine for Christ because the Son of Man came to seek, seek and save the lost. And that is still true today. Now, in Luke 5, 25, uh, 20 through 24, it says, when he saw their faith, he was uh, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, uh, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're talking about the paralytic. Jesus forgave his sins rather than healing him. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or rise up or, or rise up and walk. But that you may know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, take your bed and go to your house. He wanted them to know the son of man had the power on earth to forgive sins. Now, they knew Daniel really well. We need to know Daniel better. Daniel has a vision in Daniel chapter seven of the ancient of days with thrones. And, and I call this part of the, the aspect of the complexity of God. You find that there's these, these questions throughout the Old Testament. Let us make man in our own image. So he made man in his own image, both male and female. Well, who's the us and the are there? And then why does it go back to singular? And who's, who's gonna, who else created? The Bible says in John chapter one, no one created anything except Jesus and without him, nothing was created. So let us make man in our own image has got to be the Godhead. That's in Genesis chapter one, right out of the chute. If you're paying attention, when you're reading through the Bible, you're going to go, I'm a bit confused already because who is the us and the are here that's doing the creating? Because in the beginning, Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. So in Daniel chapter seven, in the middle of this vision, he has this visions of of beasts that are rising up and these beasts represent kingdoms that will be world powers. But there's a one world power at the end that is greater than any of the other world powers. So in the middle of this vision on world powers, he sees this. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man coming with clouds of heaven. I any that remind you guys of anything else? The son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. So now you've got the son of man on the clouds of heaven coming to the ancient of days, which I see as the father. And they brought him near to him. Then to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So the son of man in the book of Daniel just simply means human. A human is given dominion and power forever and ever in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. So when he turns and sees one that looks like the son of man, John would be very familiar with Daniel, know the reference that he's making and since a lot of the churches written to had Jewish communities with them, they would know Daniel as well.
that this is a reference to the deity of Jesus. And I know that's confusing. The Son of Man is a reference to his deity, yes, because of Daniel chapter 7. So he sees one like the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands. Now also notice that he's wandering around in the churches. The vision that we see today is a vision of the way we interact with Jesus. Jesus is here with us today. We know that the church of Ephesus is going to be threatened to have their lampstand removed, which would mean the presence of God is going to stop being there. We want to make sure that we aren't doing anything that causes us to have the lampstand removed. Or like Laodicea, Jesus said, I will spew you out. We want him in our midst. We want him to be pleased. We want to lift him up and we want to worship him. And then it says that he is clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And this is a description of the priestly robes, specifically the high priest. The high priest wore a long robe and had a band of gold across his chest. Jesus, in Hebrews 7, 17, it says, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. That's the role of the high priest. Listen to what it says in Exodus 29, 5. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron. Aaron is the high priest and the robe of the ephod, which is kind of like an apron and the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with an intricately woven band on the ephod. So there's a long robe and there is a band around it. So Jesus is in the midst of the church dressed like the high priest. Listen to what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. Seeing that they were, that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in a time of need. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. He's literally walked in our shoes. He's been tempted in every way that we are tempted. He's walking in his high priestly robe throughout the church because he gave the sacrifice himself. He was the high priest that offered the Lamb of God. He was both the Lamb of God and the high priest. And so that we can go to him to find forgiveness, strength, grace in a time of help. If you find yourself at a distance from God, if you think you've sinned and you, you've done too much and you can't find forgiveness, then come to Christ. Your high priest who is walking in the midst of our church this evening in his high priestly robe, ready to give you mercy and help in a time of need. One more, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, in all things, he had made him like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of people. 
Now, propitiation is a fancy theological doctrinal word that means the only sacrifice that would satisfy. The only thing that would satisfy God for your sin is the shedding of blood. And so he became the high priest, even though he was from the tribe of Judah, because he was a priest forever, according to Melchizedek, which we could go and do a whole preamble on that now, but we won't. If you're interested in Melchizedek, we'll talk about it later, or you could look up some things in the past. So the next thing that we see is that as a high priest, he's walking around, and in verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And notice the word like. It is like. And so that tells us that it's a, it's a simile. It tells us it's a comparison to something. If there's a metaphor and there's a weird vision of something and we're trying to figure out what it is, that's a little bit more difficult. But we know that this white hair represents something because it says it's, it's white like wool, as white as snow. Now, what does it mean that God has white hair or gray hair? In Proverbs 16, 31, it says, the silvered-haired head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. We live in a culture that doesn't necessarily value age. It values youth. But God knows there is value in age and that there's value in wisdom. God has all the wisdom of all the years. Jesus himself has all the wisdom of all the years. And that's why when we find ourselves in a difficult situation and we don't know what to do, that we should spend some time alone with Christ, go for a walk with him, sit in your backyard with him, put the paper down or the phone that you're looking at Facebook down, go sit down out back and just ask God what you should do. Isaiah 9, 6 says that this child, we have a child born unto us and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. I have, I have nothing against getting help through counsel, looking for therapists or counselors. I think that can be good when we know our limitations, but, but don't let that take the place of going to our counselor that is full of wisdom. So as he's walking, he's got this hair that is full, that is white as snow and like wool. Proverbs 20, 29 says, the glory of a young man is his strength. And I realize that now because when I have my family over, I can't open the pickle jar anymore. It's really, to be honest, it's never the pickle jar. It's the, it's the salsa jar. I just, arthritis in my hands, I just can't do it. So one of the young buck sons comes over. Here you go, buddy. Open the pickle jar. And I can't say I feel horrible when they can't open it up. Can't say I feel really, really bad. I'm like, I'm not the only one. And I know sometimes I strain myself till my hands hurt and I think, you know what? I'm just gonna let it go. Or start going through the tricks, right? Under hot water, banging it with the backside of a, of a, of a knife, going through the process. Just humble myself and hand it to one of the young bucks. The glory of a young man is his strength, but the splendor of an old man is his gray hair. There's, there's some value to that 
It would be good if culture turned around and realized that. It would be good if our children would recognize the wisdom that we have because of the years we walked, not just because we're wise, but because we walked the wrong way enough times that we've learned. Daniel 7, 9 says, I watched till there were thrones put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame and the wheels are burning. So this is, this is God's chariot throne, which is interesting, isn't it? Did you know that God had that? God, or, or a hot rod, I like to say. God souped up a throne. See, so like, boom, there goes God in his throne. But his hair, again, is white like wool. And this is a connection between the Son of Man having hair white like wool, God, the Ancient of Days, having hair white like wool, and um, them being part of the Godhead. It says that, and, and he's walking in our midst. He's here with that wisdom available for us if we will ask him and seek him. God said, call out to me and I'll answer you. The next thing it says is that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, when we're seeing this vision and I've seen pictures of this vision and pictures of the vision are absolutely terrifying. It's like a nightmare, not a vision, really. It's like a flame of fire. Whatever he saw was like a flame of fire. So the Bible says, and, and this would be a picture of God seeing everything. I think the eyes like a flame of fire means God seeing everything and having judgment and God seeing everything and purifying us. And since he's in the church, God does discipline his children, but he disciplines for our good, not to destroy us, but to bring about good. The discipline of God is, is not pleasant. It's not, it's, it's not peaceable, but it brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In 1 Peter 1, 7, it says, talking about your trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and the glory and the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus walks in our midst. He sees everything and he tests us. And my faith is precious more precious than gold. Your faith is more precious than gold, tested by fire. And so I see the fiery eyes of Christ speaking of these things. I do love that passage out of 2 Chronicles. I think it's 16.9. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to look for those whose hearts are loyal towards him. I thought about that verse when I thought about Judas this last week as we covered Judas because Judas was anything but loyal. God's eyes are looking for those who are loyal. I can tell you how I heard that verse preached when I was younger. The eyes of the Lord are going to and fro across the face of the whole earth to find people who are not sinners. That's how I heard that verse preached. So get sin out of your life. That's what God's looking for. Now, yes, I'm not saying he's not. But the actual verse doesn't say that. It says the eyes of the Lord are going back and forth across the face of the whole earth to show himself strong to those whose hearts are loyal. 
Are you loyal to him? Do you call out on God in your time of need? Is he the first one you go to? He wants to show himself strong to those whose hearts are loyal. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13 and 14, it talks about our works being tested by fire. Each one's work. Remember, this is a vision of Jesus in the church age. Each one's work will be clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and a fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. So not only are God's eyes seeing everything and God purifying our faith with tests, but God will also test our work as to whether or not it is pure. Psalm 6610 says, for you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us like silver is refined. Do you know how silver is refined? By fire, by testing. You might be going through a difficulty now. You might be saying, why, God, why? W which I find as one that's gone through a lot of difficulty. It's not very helpful to say why. I found it's better to say, Lord, use this. Use it in me. Use it in people around you. R refine us like silver. One more. This is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. It says, In this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which I just read, but the first part there, if need be, that the genuineness of your faith would be tested by fire. So then in verse 15, we're told that his feet were like fine brass, as if refined by a furnace. Again, notice the words, like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. So when you read something like that and you go, well, why does Jesus have feet of brass? And here's what I've heard when people go through this list. I've heard them kind of hit this list and they'll go kind of quickly. And they'll be like, well, the gray hair means wisdom and the eyes mean God's seen everywhere and the brass means judgment. And then they just move on. So when I began to really look into this today, I thought I was going to find a lot of things in the Bible about brass, bronze, they're the same, same thing as judgment. But I didn't. I found two different things instead. I found that brass represents redemption and that brass represents strength. Those are the two things that I found, redemption and strength. So his feet, everywhere they go, they bring us redemption. He's our redeemer. Job said, the oldest book in the Bible, I know my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him one day on the earth. Isn't it good to know that his presence is here with us today as his church and he is our Redeemer. His salvation is with him and he can redeem you and that he is strong. Now, let me give you the background of these verses that I found these two things in. First of all, the altar in the temple 
and all of its implements were to be made of brass. The altar. Now, this is not an altar. I have a Pentecostal background. I, I went to Pentecostal churches. I also went to charismatic churches when I was younger. So on Saturday night or, or on Sunday night, it was always Sunday night church. You, before you go and face your week, come to the altar. Make things right with God. And I spent a lot of time at stairs like this in churches, going up and praying at what I thought was the altar. Imagine my surprise years later when I found out the altar isn't the front of a church. When I was a kid in my room, I built a little altar in the corner of my room. It was a box that I found and I made a little railing around it. And I went down to gospel supplies, which is, I guess, equivalent to living word here. Am I right? Or have I reversed them? I might have reversed them. I did. So it's living word in Albuquerque and gospel supplies here. And I bought a little glow in the uh, dark uh, cross and I bought some little other little trinkets about Jesus and God. And I was like 14 years old, right? I mean, just come to the Lord. And I set it up in the corner of my room. So now when I started really studying what an altar was, I found out that for lack of a better word, it's like a big barbecue. It's seven cubits wide, seven cubits and three cubits high. So it's a seven cubits square, three cubits high. And it's where they would sacrifice the animals. That's the altar. It's where the sacrifice was made. To me, that makes the cross an altar. It's where Jesus was sacrificed for us. The altar was made out of brass and all the implements, the implements for cleaning, for, for getting the ashes out of there, the very practical things that they had to do to sacrifice so many animals and they did sacrifice a lot. This is um, Ezekiel 27, one through eight. I'm not gonna read all of one through eight. I'm just gonna read enough of it to get the feel for what it says. It says, um, this is the instructions on making the altar. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide. I think I said seven, so it's five. A cubit is about 18 inches. The altar shall be square and the height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns. So on the, there was horns on the, each of the, the corners of the altar that were where they tied animals. It was also a place, a sanctuary for criminals. If a criminal was being hunted down by somebody, either because they thought they killed somebody or really did, maybe they weren't a criminal, they could run into the sanctuary and grab a hold of the horns of the altar. And there's accounts of people being killed while they had a hold of the horns on the altar. But they were probably there to tie animals. You tie an animal up, you're going to sacrifice next. And you go ahead and sacrifice the animal, then kind of work them through. So it says, um, let's see here. And you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make the pans uh, to receive the ashes and its shovels and basins and its forks and its frying fire pans. You shall make the utensils of bronze. So all of those speak of judgment. I mean, I speak of redemption. So. Jesus brings us redemption. Now, also, and this is kind of a, a, a weird account. The children of Israel end up committing sin with the Moabite women. Again, the backstory on this is lengthy. It's the backstory of Balaam and Balak. And eventually the Moabite women go down and seduce the men of the city and, and, and tell them, I'll sleep with you, but you got you to gotta worship my idol first. And so the men commit idolatry and sexual sin. 
and God sends a curse of fiery, poisonous snakes. King James, fiery snakes, it's poisonous. Down and they're, they're biting people and they're dying. And so God tells Moses, make a, a, a bronze serpent. Hang it up in the middle of camp. And when someone gets bit by that serpent, by a serpent, you go and look at the bronze serpent and you will be healed. It's kind of a strange account because God could have done anything, right? But to make a bronze serpent, which to us is a picture of the serpent in the garden, right? But Jesus said that he was the bronze serpent that is lifted up. And when I am lifted up, all men will be brought into me. So Jesus became sin on the cross. And so that fiery serpent, I think a type of sin or, or even Satan, Jesus becomes sin on the cross and anyone who will look at the cross will be saved. That's redemption. And so even that strange account speaks of redemption. Numbers 21, 19. So Moses made a bronze, uh, a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And then John 3, 14 and 15, this is Jesus speaking. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So what was the comparison Jesus was making? That if you believe you can look at him and you could be saved. You can believe in him and be saved. So there must have been people in the camp who were bit. They're like, I'm bit, I'm dying. And somebody's like, go look at the snake. And they're like, what's that going to do? Go look at the snake. Like I'm going to be saved if I look at the snake. And I wonder if there were people that got bit and wouldn't go look at the snake because they didn't believe. Had they just gone and looked at the serpent the bronze serpent, they would have been saved. And how many people bitten by sin today will not believe in Jesus? He has been lifted up, but they just will not believe in him. They're like, you're telling me if I just believe in Jesus that I'll be saved? Yes. Look unto the bronze serpent. So he is walking through the midst of the churches in his high priestly robe, with his wisdom and counsel with him, with his redemption and salvation, which, which anyone can call to him. And I, I think that's what the brass feet are all about. It says his voice is like the sound of many waters. Now there's two things here that talk about his words. The next one is gonna be a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. So I think they're both talking about the word of God, but I think the, the sound of many waters is talking about the authority of God's word. God's word is authoritative. If we believe it, then good things are going to happen in our lives. But we're living in a day where people are rejecting God's word. And the crazy thing, I, I've been talking a lot about progressive Christianity lately, but the crazy thing about progressive Christianity is all it is, is our modern day culture. Modern day culture is becoming more affirming, LGBTQ plus whatever. 
They're becoming more affirming of that. And so progressive Christianity says, well, God's not going to reject someone because they love someone from their own sex. If your heart, whatever your heart tells you, God's not going to send anybody to hell. I mean, you wouldn't send your own son to hell. God created us. Why would he send us to hell? But you're thinking wrong about things. You're thinking of them from the cultural perspective. First of all, it's not just the affirming aspect. Someone can be tempted with the same sex and be a Christian, just like someone can be tempted with lust against the opposite sex and be a Christian. You can commit your life to Christ. It just, it's what, it's what you're tempted with. And what you're tempted with doesn't define you. In the world, it defines you. But that doesn't define you before God. And so you say, well, I'm, I'm attracted to the, I'm a man, I'm attracted to, to men. Well, then do what a single person is supposed to do. And, and, and take your thoughts under control. Seek God's forgiveness. Know that you find, you'll find forgiveness with God. God doesn't go, you're attracted, you're a woman attracted to other women. You can't be saved. God didn't do that. But what they want to do is say, it's okay. If a woman loves another woman and they want to be involved sexually, that's all right. Well, if a man loves another woman and they're outside of marriage, we're not supposed to let our lust drive us, but we're supposed to control our lusts. And it's the same thing. All progressive Christianity has done is take the culture of today and said, that's okay. And no wonder they've done that because here's what progressive Christianity says. Look at your heart. Your heart's your guide. You got a good heart. Your heart is a good guide for you. So your, God, your heart's going to tell you whatever your culture says is okay. If it was somebody 100 years ago, their heart told them it was okay. My argument against that is take somebody in Nazi Germany who was following after Hitler, who believed in all kinds of, of weird purity issues among races, and they, they voted for him and they followed him. He, he got voted into power because they followed their heart. The heart of man will deceive you. Your own heart will deceive you. And that's why the authority of the scriptures is what really matters. It's the authority of the word of God. And so Ezekiel 43, 2 says, For behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. God's voice is like the sound of many waters. It can't be drowned out. It is the truth. And no matter how much the world hates it, tries to destroy it, tries to talk against it, tries to, tries to paint us as being some fundamental group. There's a difference between fundamentalism and believing in the fundamentals of the gospel. And we believe in the fundamentals of the gospel, but we're not going to attack people because we are fundamentalists. In fact, as I see, I don't see myself as a fundamentalist. I'm, I see myself as someone believing in the fundamentals of the gospel. Now, the last one is the sword that comes out of his mouth. There's actually two more. I'm running out of time. Shocking. 
Verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. This again speaks of the word of God. It is sharp. It is effective. I think the many waters speak of his authority. The, the, the sword speaks of how effective the word of God is. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to cut between the bone and the marrow. It's able to get it between our soul and spirit. The answers you need are in the word of God. And that's why when you're struggling, what is the right thing to do? Find somebody that knows the scriptures and talk to them about your situation instead of just maybe taking a guess. No, look up the things within the word of God. Find someone who's, who knows God's word and ask him for help. Finally, and his countenance was like the shining of the sun. That's pretty bright. It says as like the shining of the sun, but that's the glory of our Lord. And one day we will see him. Matthew 24, 30 says, then the son of man will appear in the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and that all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. In, in Isaiah 6, 1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah said, woe am I for I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips. When we see God in his glory, we realize how much more glorified he is, how much more glorified he is than us and how you and I should serve him, follow him and worship him. He is walking in our midst glorified. He's walking in our midst with his word coming out of his mouth. He's walking in our midst with his voice like the sound of many waters. It's not hard to find. The Bible says, that there was a day when the word of God was rare. But the word of God isn't rare today. It's like the sound of rushing waters among the church. Able for us to find. And that's the Jesus we serve. Now we'll look at the rest of the passage and around it next week. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have here again to serve and follow you. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work in us. And Lord, as we see this vision of Jesus walking among us in his high priestly robe with his feet like brass, with his hair like wool, speaking with the voice of many waters, the word of God coming from his mouth, the shining like the sun in all of its glory. Lord, you are sufficient, the all sufficiency of Christ. You are everything we need. We want to embrace you. We want to follow you. Reveal to us now in the book of Revelation as, as this among the churches. May we live for you, worship you, and see you. Not the little Jesus meek and mild, but as the Son of Man in all his glory in all his splendor, who will rule the entire world. Amen.